0: I'm Glenn Gass, and welcome to WFIU's Profiles, a weekly program that introduces members of our community as well as notable visiting artists, scholars, and entertainers to the WFIU audience. Our guest today is Todd Rundgren. Happy to say. Todd Rundgren, a legendary rocker known for his own hits as well as his productions for others, as well as his band Utopia, and as well as being a uh, still vital artist four decades into a remarkable career. And uh, for those of you that might welcome our little refresher course. I should add that uh, Todd is here at Indiana University in his new capacity as Wells Scholars Professor. So here's a bit of Professor Rundgren through the years. Oh. todd thank you WFIU. very much
1: well at least you got one rocker in there at the end <laughs> <laughs> you announce well, me as a rocker and then play all of the ballads well i done, like the right? ballads i'm sorry <laughs>
0: but actually that's a good first question i before those songs fade too far from the listener's mind what's it like for an artist like you so vital creative expansive to have your career reduced to a collage like that or a, a greatest hits album does it uh
1: well it's uh It's good to be in a position to be reduced, I suppose. (laughs) A lot of uh, careers turn out to be anecdotal because they're um, brilliant but brief. And as you mentioned, I'm in my fifth decade of making music for uh, what at this particular point in time is a a fairly loyal and and long-suffering audience. And I've always felt that the... uh, that the best revenge from a musician's standpoint is to outlast everybody. And from my uh, lofty perch at this point in my career, I, I tend to look at the people who have managed to uh, make the full journey, like Tony Bennett and B.B. B. King and people like that, and those, I guess, are nowadays more the kinds of musicians that I identify with than with the sort of um, young band traveling around in a van from little club to a little club, which is kind of where I started out from. Um, So it doesn't
0: bug you when the man on the street knows. Actually, the man on the street uh, probably doesn't know who did Bang on the Drum. You've you've referred to that as Happy Birthday, a song everybody knows, but nobody really stops to think, gee, I wonder who did that.
1: Yeah, it's one thing to have hit records. It's another thing to create something that has become completely incorporated into the culture. And uh, I actually find equal satisfaction in in that. And I didn't think so at the time when everyone started singing, banging the drum at sporting events and became a drive-time hit. I didn't think that it was anything more than uh, a curiosity. But as it turns out in the long run, it actually – Turned into uh, the occasional payday as well, because its status as as a party anthem has piqued the interest of advertisers. And now, for instance, Carnival Cruise Line has maybe for the third year in a row bought the rights to use the song in their commercials. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, what was for me a musical throwaway has become a a financial linchpin <laughs> certain way. So. <laughs> at what point did you realize that
0: song had taken on a, a life of its own? Cause
1: it wasn't immediate. With it the, wasn't like immediate. And, and it at first it was a Friday drive time mm-hmm. song. I don't think it went directly to the stadium. It went um, first to local radio. And um, I guess the sentiment worked for, you know, Friday when you're on your way home for the weekend and kissing your job goodbye. So it. Uh, I'm not sure what market it started in either, but it's kind of spread across the country, and this was outside the window of it being released as a single. It never was really released as a single. I think, uh, as I recall correctly, Bearsville didn't really hear much of anything on the record that they felt like releasing, and it did get, uh, I think, a token release, but some time after the album had come out, and... It just didn't seem relevant at the time, but years later, literally years later is when the song started to um, become popular again. And then it How went... did it
0: morph into a sports celebration? It...
1: Who knows, Who knows yeah, yeah. about yeah. that? You know, it's just uh, maybe uh, some, there may be some sports venues where they still have an organist. <laughs> 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 it's a great song for an yeah. organist to play, I suppose. And a great um, song for a crowd to <laughs> chant and... Yeah, but it seems to have uh, no direct correlation to sports. There's no mention of sports in it, so I don't know how that connection was made. But then again, Gary Glitter's Rock and Roll Part 2, that doesn't even have words in it. So (laughs) I don't know how that became a sports anthem. It's just one of these things that people find easy to sing along together when they feel festive, I Mm -hmm. guess. Well,
0: we had our own moment here at Indiana University for our football game when you led the marching band, uh, directed the band in that song. I think people have this impression that, you know, and it's, I'm sure mistaken, uh, that one hit, like if you wrote Hang On Sloopy or Green Tambourine, you you just live off that the rest of your life and everything's, you've got it made.
1: I'm assuming that's not, uh, it's not as easy as that. Well, Writing the song is only one aspect of the, of the process. There's, of course, the recording of the song. And there is the incorporation of the song into your live performances, which allows you to create yet another sort of product out of it. But a musician's lifestyle is unusual in ways that people probably don't think about. They probably only think about what the uh, upside might be the attention, the ability to play music, uh, the uh, lifestyle, I suppose. But you're in a different position than most people. For instance, uh, you're not working for somebody else. You're working for yourself. So you often find yourself in trouble when tax time comes because there's been no withholding during the rest of the year. (laughs) And you have to come up with a giant sum of money uh, to – uh, keep the IRS at bay, and so that's been just a constant fixture in my life. It's like the IRS is my ex-wife or something. And also you are, an, or at least I am in that certain sense, I'm an employer. I have I have to pay all the musicians who work for me. I have to bear the expense of travel and and equipment costs and things like that. So the money comes in, the money goes out. And, uh, you're essentially running a company in a way and whatever it is that you can make off the music is the operating expenses of the company. So if you don't manage to sort of keep the income at a certain level, your lifestyle is going to overtake you and you'll have to get another job (laughs) doing something else, um, but it must be remarkable to have a song like that, have this second, third, fourth, hundredth life, end up on a cruise commercial and uh, just keep... It part. is remarkable, but the problem is it's something that you have no control over. Yeah. You know, it's, as I say, it, the song really had a life of its own and nobody envisioned what was going to happen with it. Otherwise, we might have planned a little bit more for it. <laughs> well, I know Hello, It's Me was a what was it, Tums commercial last year, I think. Yeah, it was a Tums commercial. We always thought that the first application for that would be for like AT&T or something <laughs> like that. But I don't know, a Tums commercial, why not? Sure. You seem
0: to have kind of a, a love-hate relationship with that, with your hits, with Hello, It's Me, with something, anything, this sense that it was... A little too easy, a little too uh, plain to the audience. Well, I think that
1: that, that's you know love hate has. I think I've heard that a few times. I think that's a mischaracterization. It's just that I evolved past that point, you know. And a lot of the times, the audience—that's the last thing they want from you—is any sign of musical evolution. Once they become attracted to what you do, they want—they want you to just do that and. The problem there for me is that I got into the music business because I was a musician, not because I wanted to be a celebrity or, well, I did want girls to chase me like the Beatles, but um, that's that's just natural. I always had musical goals that I wanted to achieve more than uh, commercial high water marks or the kind of celebrity that... Um, Oh, maybe John Bon Jovi enjoys (laughs) and instead looked at uh, my opportunities as being entirely musical. And at a certain point after I had done uh, the aforementioned something, anything that had three or four radio hits on it, I made just a purely musical estimation of it. It had nothing to do with how successful it was. And realized that I was not investing myself in the music in a way that I was capable of, and so after that I started. I took a different approach to songwriting. It was a must, much less commercial approach, but I was um, becoming myself instead of the male Carol King. In the long run, I think that that's why I still have a career now. If I had continued to write. Something Anything 2, Something Anything 3, whatever, the audience ultimately would have been bored with it. And I would have inevitably come up against a choice about how to evolve. And a lot of artists, they would just evolve into whatever was popular at the time. I recall like Rod Stewart going disco. Mm -hmm. It worked for him, certainly worked for him, but it was a dubious kind of
0: (laughs) – well, I've heard you make career the, choice in I've a way. You make a distinction several times between an entertainer who has to think about his audience and actually play to their expectations, and an artist who has to be true to his, himself, herself, and their muse, and the audience can come along or not.
1: Mm-hmm. And, well, you know, different audiences, I think, un- understand that in different ways. You know, the it it seems that we we always assume to talk about the pop audience that that buys or that would have bought records in the top 10, top 20, that sort of thing. I uh, have always tried to remind the people that I make records for that, of course, we're trying for commercial success today, but you don't want to be ashamed of your record Mm -hmm. five years from now because all you cared about was its commercial possibilities. And so I've always made records, hopefully to be able to listen to them, like, way down the line and still feel like there was something real going on musically and not just a calculation to try and make the record commercially successful.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, if you wouldn't mind going back to Something Anything for one more, one more time, uh, I'll play you one of my favorite songs, and favorite songs of all time, actually. Couldn't I just tell you from Something Anything...
1: That's a little more rock. Yeah, you were complaining
0: (laughs) I wasn't playing your rock songs. Now, I don't... Is that a rock song? It's a rock song? It's uh, a pop song? It's a folky...
1: Power pop? I don't know, whatever. It's... uh, And that song also has, you know, its own reputation separate from any other song on on something, anything, uh, even though it was not released as a single. Or if it was, I don't know what ever happened to it, but... um, but it seems a remarkable remarkable hybrid of pop rock uh yeah. sensibilities and all, all and it is a a song that musicians tend to musicians lo- love gravitate yes. towards and, the, as opposed to the audience at
0: large and boyfriends know. making mixtapes for their girlfriends
2: ah that, that must kind of be thing, the yeah. m- <laughs> most used
0: song couldn't i just tell you the way that i feel uh you're such an eclectic artist i wonder where you uh came from and i mean that literally and also musically what your cabbage leaf yeah cabbage leaf yeah. <laughs> Um, I know you're from the Philadelphia area, but I wonder what ob- influences you absorbed on your way to becoming an uh, American-British band called
1: Naz. Yeah, it's interesting because Philadelphia did have its own music in a way. We had a label called Cameo Parkway, but the artists were like Chubby Checker and D.D. D. Sharp and all they sang about were dance crazes and things like that. But we did have a station that played a lot of R&B music and um, – I consider that more the music of my youth than, for for instance, typical rock and roll, like Elvis Presley. I was never an Elvis Presley fan. Um, I can appreciate what he has accomplished, and I can see the appeal of his early records, but they didn't connect with me. I was fixated on the guitar as an instrument and thought, if I was a musician, that's what I'd like to do, is be a guitar player, so... Learned to play guitar all through high school, and when I got out, I managed to get into a blues band pretty much within a few weeks of graduating and did that for about eight or nine months. Um, and then Acid Rock was discovered, and the band decided they wanted to uh, be like the Grateful Dead or something, go to the country, drop a lot of acid, and get their heads together. And so I moved on from that and plundered a uh several of the other local bands to uh, find the musicians that I wanted to play with and formed a band called the Naz. And we were something of a local phenomenon. Um, But it wasn't too long after we formed, maybe about six months, that we got, quote, discovered, end quote, talking to Roger Daltrey in in the Holiday Inn bar after a (laughs) Who show in Philadelphia and a guy came up to us and said, you guys look like you're in a band. And we said, yeah, we dress that way and because uh, we are in a band. And he said, I'm looking for a band to manage. So we auditioned for him, and he decided we were the band he wanted to discover. And for the next 18 months or so, we lived the life of rock stars, except for the fact that our records were not hits <laughs> or anything like that. We went everywhere in limousines and – uh we were in all the teeny bopper magazines and things like that. But when our record finally did come out, it was, you know, it came out with a mighty thud. And uh, our first single, Hello, Open it's, My Hello Eyes, it's me. And, and well, Open My Eyes that, was and, the first single. And, like... and Hello, It's Me was on the other side. And, mm-hmm. and it wasn't until we were, uh, had finished our second album, we were already in the process of breaking up as a band. That uh, "Hello, It's Me" became enough of a radio hit that it was worth us going out and playing just to make some money. So even though I had quit the band, I continued to go out with the band on uh, the occasional gig here and there, just because we were going to get paid for. It. <laughs> and then soon they found a soon enough they found a replacement for, for me, and that's when I, uh, well, I had a period of a m- m- maybe a. Couple of months maximum, where I was doing nothing, trying to figure out what to do next. But because I had taken on such a hands-on approach to the uh, records that the NAS were making, it occurred to somebody at working at the Bearsville organization that I might be uh, a useful, useful talent for them. Mm-hmm. So I essentially got hired mostly just to um, produce and engineer records. It sounds like producing and making your own records, playing all the
0: instruments, was almost a reaction to the negative side of being in a band and dealing with other personalities in that way. In a sense, yeah. I had lost all interest in trying to be democratic. (laughs) But did uh, you find – was Utopia a conscious effort to regain
1: that? uh, Specific purpose of utopia in my mind was to allow me to be a guitar playing frontman in an era when i was writing a lot of the material on the piano and so my own records were getting very piano-y in a way and i found it a you know a more um a more flexible instrument to write on um but i also felt that in the process of learning more about the piano and using the piano more as a tool and and ultimately playing piano live, that I was uh, losing what I had fought so hard to gain as a guitar player. Mm -hmm. And so I formed Utopia as a way to kind of stay sharp as a player, uh, to do something that was something more of a musical collaboration. Um, The problem with the NAS is that I was becoming a much more prolific songwriter than anyone else in the band and in and even though we sort of credited all everything to everybody in the Uh band in a way they were only coming up with the occasional song and i was just coming up with a lot of with a lot of music well and
0: utopia seemed to really open up a lot of doors sound wise for you good
1: example might be the icon in fact uh well utopia became unique in the fact that we uh we would perform a lot of the music before we would record it. And indeed, by the time we got to the second Utopia album, it was all live. Mm -hmm. So uh, we were very much about the live performance aspect of it. Um, We did make some use of the studio tricks and things that we had available to us, but that was a far less emphasis than the actual musicality of what we were doing. Could we hear a bit of the icon as a... Contrast to Hello, It's Me, quite a Mm -hmm. contrast.
0: It sounds like you you dropped Ravel and I know you like Gilbert and Sullivan. It sounds like you grew up in a family where uh, music was at least a part of the fabric and were exposed to quite a wide
1: range. Yeah, there was a lot to of music rock. in our household and almost none of it was the contemporary pop music or the sound of the sounds of what the youth was listening to. Mm-hmm. Um my dad liked uh classical music and uh and show tunes. My mom liked to listen to the the kind of um, – that sort of Patty Page, uh, slightly post-big band uh, singers era and things like that. We would get taken out every once in a while to see summer stock uh, musicals and things like that. And uh, I developed personal interest in certain artists like, as you mentioned, uh, Gilbert and Sullivan. I was totally fascinated with – uh, not only the music, but the but the lyrics and what they revealed about the to- about the era mm-hmm. that they were written in. And I had a friend uh, who had an equal appreciation for Gilbert and Sullivan. So th- together, we essentially learned their entire libretto and would, at the drop of a hat, break into a song from Pirates of Penzance <laughs> or Ilanthe or something like that, just to prove how smart we were. See, and, you came by your
0: eclecticism
1: and. Uh sense of flair, uh, honestly. Probably, and of course the Beatles went through such radical evolutions during their career that I, by the time I got to making music, I thought that was what a band was supposed to do. You were supposed to be eclectic and experiment with other musical styles. It made what you did more interesting. And uh, when I first started the NAS, we did go to some trouble to make sure that there was a good mix of guitar-oriented things and ball- and somewhat balladic things mm-hmm. and somewhat orchestral things as well. There was a big, big or- orchestral arrangement on one of the songs. And, um, yeah, that kind of stuck with me all through what I was doing. Maybe one of the reasons why when I got to Something Anything, I thought that I needed to make a change in that Oof. too many of the songs were sitting in the same sort of in the same kind of genre uh, and same kind of approach and I thought I was wasting my opportunity to explore other things. Mm -hmm. I tend to do things the opposite way of the way other people write songs. I get musical ideas first and I elaborate those as much as as I can before I get to the point of thinking up melodies and words and stuff to go with them. Mm -hmm. And I think that characterizes my records in a certain way. Uh, I don't know whether it's a good way or a bad way, but for the most part, that's how I write music. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm incapable of writing the other way, but since I do have the tools nowadays to make all of the sounds that I want the, the end product to have in it, I figure I'll just start working on the end product, and I'll start with the part that I'm sure of, the very, you know, what tempo it is, <laughs> okay? Then I'll have some idea of, you know, maybe what I'd like the rhythmic bed to be like and and then fill that out. I'll probably have some changes, you know, like I'll call this a verse, I'll call this a chorus. With the tools we have, I can sort of move those around, you know, I say maybe that isn't the ver- chorus, maybe that's the verse, and maybe what I think the verse is is the bridge, something like that. There's a huge amount of flexibility nowadays. In uh, in terms of uh, offline composition, mm-hmm. in a way, you know, you don't have to be in the studio to be able to g- get into this process. So um, it could be said that the evolution of the tools has also evolved the way that I write, that I write music. In other words, if I had no sequencers, synthesizer, other way to transcribe the musical ideas, I likely would have to sit down and write the whole song out on a piano or guitar. But since I don't have to, why should I? Mm -hmm. Well, you've always
0: been an early adopter of technology. I think you said, I fear no machine or no technology. And you always seem a few years ahead of the curve. That includes making music videos before MTV existed and the CDI, the interactive CD or a cappella where everything was what through an emulator your voice was actually
1: fed into a yeah a keyboard. well it seems also that i that also puts me um on the next curve when the curve when the current curve suddenly has peaked so i often find that i'm doing something or working in a working with a certain tool or in a certain way and uh by the time it has been more widely adopted I've been become interested in something else. And so I'm not there to exploit the newfound interest in this thing. I'm only interested in the next thing, what what's about to happen. I guess that's always uh, been an essential part of my musical philosophy is why should I do the music that somebody else is capable of doing? Well, that's just redundant. I need to make music that only I am likely to make. And even though that may not be the most popular music, I won't be confused with somebody else. Mm -hmm. I will have a musical identity of my own. And through the commercial ups and downs of my career, that's remained kind of a constant. And I may, every once in a while, um, do something that's purposefully redolent of, say, a a prior style. Uh, I may try and do something that sounds more or less like a traditional R&B or something like that. But the difference will be in the subject matter of the song or something like that. It won't be the typical, I love you, baby. Uh, You're so good to me, or I love you, baby. You're so terrible to me. It'll be an R&B song about personal transformation or something like Mm -hmm. that, you know, instead. And, uh, that keeps me in my own, uh, in my comfort zone. And my comfort zone is essentially only comfortable if it's not rubbing up against somebody else's. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, personal transformation, actually, there's a good example of that. uh, From uh, Initiation, 1975, Real Man. Uh, Terrific song where you seem to be grappling with what it means to uh, become an adult and take responsibility and phrase very elegantly with terrific music.
1: The real men We all men got to grow up sometimes
0: the real men The real men Some of them things and nows
2: the real men Production support for profiles comes from Smithville a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.
0: Suffering them slings and arrows. Yeah. It seems like you've (laughs) grappled with, more than most artists, grappled with your inner life
1: through your music. uh, Well, that's kind of what I get out of it. It's not that I have disdain for my audience. I just realize that, that their wishes in terms of where I might go musically uh, are motivated by other things than my desires. And that in the end, they um, they don't necessarily want to be pandered to so much as learn something about me that they don't know. And ideally in that process... Uh, learn something about themselves mm-hmm. and in point of fact that song real man it sounds like it's about growing up and is intended to sound like you know growing up but it's not about growing up it's about growing inward it's about discovering the parts of yourself that are not your physical body and have nothing to do with your gender um it's more about the realization that um, life is about becoming. It is not about um, arriving at anything. That it is, it's a constant evolution. And that a lot of people are just looking to learn enough in life to be able to get by. And that they are missing out on this whole other life. You know, a, the life of the mind or whatever. You know, a, a, an internal life in which you... Strive to understand yourself, and strive to transform yourself according to what you find there. You have to be willing to face the things about yourself that are unpleasant, and then not simply accept them; do something about them. And that's more the you know the kind of responsibility that I'm talking about, not about like suiting up and going to war or any of the mm-hmm. other things that we associate with manhood. Yeah, in fact he spoke out beautifully against that and Swing to the Right
0: and One World and Liz Estrada and staying true to your yourself. And as you say, that's kept you going for over four decades. I know that this next little excerpt comes from an album called Healing, which was, I think you've described it as the result of a spiritual quest and a round the world trip and some hard times and 1980, and just uh, just looking inward, as you say. And it's absolutely gorgeous. It, it
1: feels like a an album-length meditation. Well, you uh, can uh, really get burnt out if you take seriously this personal transformation thing. It's not the same as going to the gym and lifting weights, you know, or going on a diet so you can get trim. You're going into some territory that is pretty rarefied. And I got pretty aggressive at it for a while. And kind of reached a point of exhaustion, and I had to refound myself and reorganize myself in order to get back on track. And so I kind of got fascinated with the idea of um, music as a um, as a therapeutic aid, That not necessarily that you could play the music to someone who was ill, and just the sound waves would heal them, mm-hmm. but if you were had it in mind to kind of get better or or um, evolve or whatever, that the music w- helped you maintain that frame of mind and, and help that frame of mind become effective for you. And um, that was essentially the, the one half of the record. One half of the record was this uh, experiment in musical therapy, and the other half of the record was a story about... I guess a metaphorical story about someone who had the power to heal other people mm-hmm. and um, what the ultimate result of that is. And essentially the result is that if you do it for people, they don't do it for themselves. Mm-hmm. And so the, the the power to heal is a very qualified blessing in that sense and that people will just – they'll use you up mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. won't do any of the work themselves. Well, it seems
0: like it must have been a cathartic record to make. In fact, I'd like to hear a little of uh, that album-length meditation healing, (laughs) part two.
2: Look upon yourself Only with compassion Strip away the shell
0: heard that not too long ago live and you could have heard a pin drop in the hall during that entire section. Was, <laughs> everyone was r- asleep. Really, no, <laughs> no, everyone was like, almost hypnotized. It was beautiful. It was it was a remarkable experience. It's almost like ambient music to 10 years
1: before people started calling into that. Um, yeah, it does have uh, great ambient passages in there, you know, and it's the kind of thing where it's Hard to do a little you know, hard to drop into it and then drop out of yeah, it that's you know, still, they'll, they'll, they'll an excerpt like that even though it uh, it accurately represents what's going on musically there's other a, other aspects of it as well and it's meant to be as you say almost a a continual meditation from that that goes over the entire side of the record. Of course, we don't have sides anymore. But <laughs> in those days, well, that's it was one still thing,
0: vinyl. <laughs> in the era of iTunes downloads and single songs, yeah. it, it strikes me that you came of age at just the right time to be an album artist and to have a broader mm-hmm. canvas for your ideas to stretch out across. Uh, you would have been a great hit single '60s artist too. You've got that talent, but uh, you seem to play both really well. But I wonder if you mourn the loss of, of albums as an entity, as a Again, an artistic canvas, young people don't seem to think that way anymore and young bands don't seem to think that way anymore.
1: Well, lifestyle has sort of changed and it's – I have my own theories about why that changed. I have a whole presentation that I've given on occasion about um, the history of the music business and how how audience uh, habits and proclivities have sort of changed over time. Because in the end, it's the audience that defines the market. You can't force people to buy something they don't want to buy. When the Sony Walkman became a hugely popular uh, item, it changed the way that everyone listened to music at that point because you were able to take the music out of your house and carry it around with you wherever you went. Um, And so it became a backdrop to, to your lifestyle Now the music is sharing your mind with some other activity, Mm -hmm. and then eventually um, the integrity of the album breaks down because people are no longer listening to the whole album. And the iTunes store, when that came out, reinforced that because their principal model was the 99-Cent Song and the albums that they, when they sold the albums, they added up all ninety-nine cents. It was more expensive than going to a store and getting the CD. But despite that, you know, the the music-consuming audience, which is usually much younger than the population at large, because they've got the disposable income to to burn on music, they just started to see the world of music as being individual songs, and less so um, longer form works. You don't even evaluate the quality of the artists anymore. It's just all that song is. That song is that song hot? Are all the kids listening to that song? Then and is it on Guitar Hero or a yeah Disney Channel thing or yeah? The well, whole- there, there's also that. There's the a new generation of artists who actually have been groomed in a way in a very old style, almost Hollywood sensibility. Uh, the whole new Mickey Mouse Club thing that has produced Christina Aguilera and Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake and all these people, they essentially had built-in audiences by the time they got seriously into their record careers. And regardless of the kind of music that, that they were making, there was it was going to get bought. Yeah, and the, the, the
0: thing you're talking about, the whole sitting there at 2 in the morning with your head between the speakers... Listening intently focused on music seems to be, uh, you yeah, know, that's how I grew up. Music is the center of my life, is uh-huh. a tangible thing, and that does seem to be lost. If we would go back to 1973 and put our ears back on after uh, after something, anything, the album you came out with was A Wizard of True Star, mm-hmm. which which is an album with a capital A. It's not a selection of cuts. In fact, I think you've talked about it as a ten- intentionally a jumble of the things simultaneously happening in your in your brain, trying to capture that effect. And maybe we could hear a little bit of, of that. If the listeners a sense. imagine you just heard Hello, It's Me and I Saw the Light. And you bought Todd Rundgren's new album and heard uh, this. decision you must have made to say uh, I'm not going for the charts and I've heard you refer to this maybe lovingly so as sort of your career suicide moment when you decided I'm going to follow my muse and not my uh, I don't know,
1: your manager, your radio programmer, your audience's Mm -hmm. expectations That was a general estimation of of what I had done. A lot of reviews kind of took that sort of attitude It became uh, just as interesting to me to start messing around with the sounds of the instruments and and utilizing the studio as if it was an instrument Mm -hmm. uh, instead of just a mechanism to capture sound. And uh, the whole album was the first that we did in the studio that I had built. So the kind of the album and the studio came together at the same time, and the studio represented a whole kind of liberation in that since we owned it, we could do anything we wanted with it. There was... um, there was no time clock. We could come in any time we wanted and stay as long as we wanted. We could plug anything into any other thing if we felt like it without some engineer saying, no, 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 you can't do that. You know, my responsibility if I blew something up. So <laughs> so we tended to do things like that, to just overblow things in a way that a normal studio wouldn't, uh, to do all sorts of other uh, little sonic ex- and experimental things, uh, both uh from an oral standpoint, from a musical standpoint, that might not have occurred to me if I had been um, laboring under the restrictions that a normal studio environment would have had, you know only certain hours, only allowed to use the equipment in a certain way, mm-hmm. and uh, so the record represented liberation in a number of, on a number of fronts for me, and eventually it turned out to be uh, The foundation of my career. It turned out to be the thing that characterized me and separated me from other artists. And in the process of doing that, I began accruing an audience of my own, an audience that wanted to hear what I was going to come up with next, were interested in the kinds of subjects that I was dealing with. They were actually interested in self-exploration and self-transformation and things like that. As it turns out, they they are extraordinarily loyal mm-hmm. to the point that you know I have an audience that's made up substantially of people who have been listening to the music since something, anything. That's nearly 40 years. So um, that is what I consider an accomplishment, uh, not the number of hit records that you have, but that you've been able to build an audience of your own that will – essentially go
0: through life with you. <laughs> I was going to ask some more questions about that transitional moment, but I think you've answered them already. And as you even sing on the album, if you want the obvious, you'll get the obvious, but you're not interested in making the obvious anymore. And as you said, was it a true star? Well, it wasn't that, that was the album that the fans voted for, uh, for what they wanted to... The album they most <laughs>
1: wanted to see recreated live. So the yeah, album that nine, seemed like a mistake in, at the in time... In 2009, the, uh-huh. uh, uh, the online a radio show called Rundgren Radio. They polled their listenership and said, if, uh, if Todd would do any album in his career, uh, reproduce it live, which one would you want to hear? And it was overwhelmingly a Wizard of True Star. So I think that says something about my audience and, and the point at which they became really more intensely interested in what I was doing. And... Um, it's funny when and, you hear and, that, and also you know, a recognition of what it is that's unique about what I do that that is that is me essentially, and not me trying to be somebody else. you sort of were suddenly given entree to
0: this world of musicians to work with, and really were hired as sort of this wunderkind genius in the studio as much as maybe a potential hit artist yourself uh you're working you're producing the band and New York dolls and grand funk and you know. Mm-hmm. On up to meatloaf, bad out of hell, that seems like almost like a, your day job to fund your hobby
1: of your own career on a, on a certain level. Is that a fair? Um, that's fair the, that's certainly the way that I saw it. Mm-hmm. I uh, joined the Grossman Organization as an engineer producer and uh, was first set about to kind of like transform some of their older artists into more, help them make a more contemporary sounding record. Or simply to help them make a record in the case of the of the uh, of stage fright, you know mm-hmm. since I was employed more or less by the a Grossman organization, they didn't have to worry about paying an engineer you know they had an engineer on staff, so I wound up doing that and it was only after I'd done a few records for them that I asked for a budget. They didn't sign me as an artist per se. They had maybe thought that I had retired completely from, from that. But I continued to write music and wanted to have a, a some sort of venue to um, to document it. So I asked for a re- uh, for a budget and I made the record and they were sort of taken aback at its eclecticism and the – fact that it had a song that had radio potential on it we got to get you a woman that was we got to get mm-hmm. you a woman which uh could have been a bigger single if it hadn't come out at that at the same time as a certain amount of feminist rage was happening <laughs> and there was a misinterpretation of the lyrics and the radio stations were getting bomb threats from militant feminist groups so don't play that song don't play that we got to get you a woman we're not things <laughs> You know, <laughs> we have to get you a female person <laughs> or something. I don't know. There was a, there was umbrage about it, a basic misunderstanding, and um, and so the record may have become bigger if that hadn't happened because uh, some people actually took the threat seriously. <laughs> And then Something Anything. And then Something Anything
0: came out, yeah. It seems was... like you fear no artist also. I mean, to be 20, what were you, 22 and working with a band who were like holy relics at that point after Big Pink and the Brown album. And
1: you, I don't get the sense you were in, trembling in awe or fear of this. No, not necessarily. I knew what I liked and what and what I was ambivalent about. Mm-hmm. And I always found it sort of unusual that these guys were from Canada but they uh, insisted on coming off as if they were from Alabama and uh, <laughs> when indeed none of them had that. N- nobody except Levon had a southern accent, you know, but they're still singing about the Civil War and stuff, you know. So, And also when you start to work with people, you know, you realize that they have human foibles as well. You know, if, if you never meet them, you can put them on a pedestal soon as you meet them, they're soon off the pedestal, and that uh, you know that adoration you you had has to be has to be moderated and uh, I know I had that experience when I was working with XTC. We had such acrimony at certain points of the process that I was unable to listen to XTC after that. You know, it it would just remind me of the acrimony. (laughs) So, yeah, once you start working with people, they become people. You know, they're no longer these, you know, icons. And uh, the most remarkable thing about them is their ability to come together and form this this unique kind of sound and, and music with a certain sort of quality about it. And when you witness how that comes together, something of the mystique, goes out of that as well and in some ways you know in watching the band and what they produced i thought god there's just there's a lot of luck going on here there's just a lot of happenstance well you went pretty directly from that to having
0: george harrison hand Badfinger over to you and uh the new york dolls you were involved with sort of proto-punk and then turn around and I turn grand so, yeah. funk, this lumbering jam band or whatever into yeah. a tight singles band with Ameri- we're an american band and right. locomotion and
1: I suppose that's the irony is that um, – and probably the f- frustration for my own label was that I was able to make commercial hits for other people mm-hmm. and for some reason obstinately refused to do so, my, do it for myself. Mm-hmm. And it, that wasn't my attitude. My attitude was that I had songs that could be singles if somebody wanted to work them hard enough. But all through the uh, 80, uh, the 70s and into the 80s, there was this um, evolution in the business uh, towards market analysis. Uh, and so people weren't – it was no longer the old-fashioned process of this sounds like it could be a hit. Let's try and get somebody to put it on the radio so we can find out if it is. Instead, they would – you would send your, send your music to the Arbitron rating system, <laughs> to Arbitron – I think it was down in Atlanta or something at the time, and they would have like a typical what they considered a typical audience sit there and listen to the music and rate it, and you would get a number back from them, some between zero and a hundred or something like that, and if the number wasn't high enough, well then the label wasn't going to waste the money to promote it. so it was never no longer a question of personal belief in the music. you know it was all this kind of market analysis. And so it became futile for me to even think in terms of singles.
0: Um, Well, the most famous production you've done, I suppose, is Bad Out of Hell, which nobody saw coming and nobody had any faith in but you from what everyone from Meatloaf on down has said, and you pulled a rabbit out of your hat and had, what, the fifth, fourth, fifth biggest-selling album of all time? The biggest-selling
1: of all time at this point, I don't know. And uh and probably since the age of albums (laughs) has passed, that's the way it's going to stay. Um, I mean,
0: is is that era over? Where like the
1: is the role of of a producer different now than when people well, not necessarily. You you know, there were all those freaking boy bands from Orlando. You know that this one guy essentially discovered and produced. But in any case, uh, it is still possible to you know to make a manufactured product. All of the songs that are in the top ten now are really you know these very mannered, calculated producer, production-oriented records.
0: But what you did was
1: not calculate.
0: I mean, you seem to find the strengths, unique strengths of each artist rather than impose your
1: will on them. It depends on what your priorities are as, as a producer. Mine was always, you know, you've got to have a decent song. It's not worth going to the trouble of trying to turn a Sal's ear into a silk purse if you don't have decent material to start with. It's not going to be a pleasant experience making the record. Mm-hmm the emphasis on uh on the songs probably came about because i was a songwriter so i felt qualified to make judgments about other people's material and a lot of other producers maybe don't have that songwriting experience or the uh or breadth of musical sensibility and will really just take the gig based on how the band sounds you know, they'll say, well, the singer sounds like they've got a voice that would work on radio, so we'll do that. We won't fret so much about the fine points of the material. If they've got material, okay, we'll do that. And then often you know, acts are not looking necessarily to be unique, only successful. And so they will sing whatever material is necessary to do that. And those kinds of acts, they're easy, just too easy to produce. They're too easy to do. Um, and I always felt that for me, uh, the production is also a way for me to expand my own musical horizons. And when I work with someone who perhaps whose music is perhaps unfamiliar to me from a genre standpoint or something like that, I still would like to have the opportunity of trying to make a, a, a record with them so that I can learn more about that music, uh, learn more about their sensibility, what makes them – how do they base their determinations on what is – what works for them and what doesn't work for them. And it's often, you know, has to be – you have to sort of struggle to put yourself in their frame of mind sometimes. Well, you've had a remarkable career
0: as I mean amazing to have a twin career as a producer and mm-hmm. artist simultaneously and to evolve from a singer-songwriter to a prog rock hero to – uh, one of the great experimenters in almost every new genre and technology. And all the Todd Rundgren fans listening are going, hey, Utopia, hello, Naz, hello. Yeah. I feel like we're doing the uh, radio equivalent of that collage we started with. It's just not enough time to do more than scratch the surface. But I think we're out of, running out of time, sadly. So you're going to have to come back to IU, Todd. And, uh, I, oh, twist my arm. Twist <laughs> your arm. We'll twist your arm. I hope you've enjoyed being here. And I've certainly enjoyed speaking with our, uh, our guest, Todd Rundgren, on Profiles. Uh, thank you for your time and Thank you, insight. Glenn. And I it would be nice to close with what you chose to close your concert with here in, the, in our hall at IU uh, One World.
2: The program you just heard was recorded in November of 2010. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.